ain't surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better. While balancing running with the rest of their lives, this episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the company that measures what's going on inside your body so you can make sure that you're doing everything you need to be the athlete that you want to become. They track 43 different biomarkers and give you your inside age. It's, it's, it's unbelievable what they're able to do. And not only that, you can get 25% off. That's right, 25% off by using code RamblingRunner or by going to InsideTracker.com forward slash RamblingRunner. I rely on these guys and have been relying on them, frankly, for a long time now because there's only so much that your scale and your mirror can tell you. And these biomarkers are so vitally important for me. Not only do I want to make sure that I'm on top of my iron, my ferritin, my vitamin D, my testosterone, but also for me, my lipid panel, it's hugely important. And I can get all of this in one place. So go to InsideTracker.com forward slash Rambling Runner today to save 25% on all of your purchases. So today's episode is with John Verhagen. John is an unbelievable story. I mean... If you've seen the title of this podcast, you already know what it is. A 300-pound teenager to marathon winner. I mean, that is an unbelievable journey. And John was just so, um, I mean, just so generous in giving all of his time to explain exactly how it happened. And in pure John form, he's so humble about it that you almost lose sight of just how remarkable this journey was. I mean, he is, he just goes step by step that by the end, you're like, okay, this, this whole thing makes sense. And it's not that it doesn't make sense when you take a step back, but you might lose the magnitude of it when you're just in the middle of the story. So I just want to make sure before we get started that you realize how amazing this is and just, you know, how incredible he is in terms of his ability to, um, ultimately do what needs to be done to get there. So let's get into it with John Verhagen. Hello, John, and welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to chat. John, my goodness, you just went out and won the McCurdy Micro Marathon uh, held here in New England a couple weekends ago. First of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. It really means a lot. It's uh first time winning a uh, marathon and actually race in general. So uh, definitely a good feeling and first time breaking tapes. So uh uh, first time there and very excited about that. Yeah, that is, I mean, obviously winning any race is a huge deal. Even if like you're just running against family members, right? And again, oh, a win is a win is a win, which is absolutely fantastic to win a marathon and to do it with an eight minute PR coming in at 249. Holy cow. That in and of itself is an extraordinary thing. And I would be so excited to chat with you. You also are a man who lost a hundred pounds earlier in your life that is again that story is crazy to combine these two things together is truly remarkable and i'm so excited to talk about all of it before we get into that i will have to ask you because there's another mccurdy micro marathon happening this weekend in michigan you live in michigan so what prompted you to hop on a plane to fly to new england when just a couple weeks after the race that you ran you could have stayed much closer to home yeah, no, absolutely. And it's funny you brought that up. And a uh, little background on that is I have uh, I ran that course twice, actually. It's at Millennium Park, right outside Grand Rapids, Michigan. It uh, It's also a race of a last chance to BQ series. It's uh, basically a series put on by uh, by the organization with the intentions of getting a BQ and a last minute BQ for that matter, too. Um, so I've ran that course twice now, and not going to lie, uh, the second time I did not have the greatest experience, so I got a little bit of uh, running PTSD there. So uh, I think I wanted to change, and I let uh, my uh, running friend Heather convince me, too, to run the McCurdy Marathon over in uh, Connecticut. There you go. Yeah, coming out my direction. See, I live in Rhode Island, so I, I, I'm like sitting there like, wait, you're in Michigan, man. I can't believe you're not staying there. But running PTSD is definitely a thing. It, it's interesting. Like, I'll be. It's funny what we can remember when we're running, and not it all be negative either. Like, I'll go on some runs, and then like I'll hear something like on, on a certain like podcast or audio book, and like. 
for the to the end of time, if I hear that that part of the audiobook or podcast again, I'll remember exactly where I heard it the first time. It's so interesting how like memory can get tied to athletic performance, even in the most mundane circumstances. Absolutely, especially on a loop course in both uh, the Michigan courses uh, loops. So I'm, I believe it's six loops over there. So definitely get to experience a lot and a lot of deja vu. That's for sure. Oh, that's interesting. So when you did your marathon there, I mean, and I bring this up to say the McCurdy Marathon Series is, is a, not a whole lot different than some of the other things that we've seen in terms of races being held in more condensed areas. And we're seeing a lot of races that aren't being held in quite the form or fashion that they have in the past. But when you ran it, it wasn't like this wasn't COVID times. It was more more of a traditional type race scenario. So what was the benefit, um, I guess, from a course selection of choosing a course that was so tightly looped against six loops for a marathon when you had other options uh, at that point in time? Yeah. And the big reason for that is what what it really stood for. And that is, you know, last chance to be Q. And that, that really stuck with me. Um, that That race in general is really unique because... A, you have to qualify for it, and B, you're running with other individuals and other athletes that are on the same mission for you. So when you go to that race, those last chance to BQs, everyone's intention is to get into Boston, you know, qualify for Boston and ultimately run a Boston qualifying time. So that was really the real intentions for running it. And the first time I had real good experience, that was my previous PR before uh, the Connecticut or New York Marathon. And that was a 257. Had a really good experience there at the time. It was my personal best. It uh, just squeaked me into Boston. Uh, at that time, the 2020 cutoff was a minute and 39 seconds. And I had uh, just a little bit over two minute buffer there. So it was a really good experience my first time around. Second time, uh, not so hot. You know, I uh, started off too quick. I actually ran a uh, half marathon PR in the first half of that race. And that that was not a smart idea whatsoever. I ended up paying for it later in the race and uh, still ran a respectable 303 in that marathon, but not a BQ and ultimately definitely paid for it um, for that half. And that, that caused the p- running PTSD from that marathon specifically and did me in for that course. Oh, man. <laughs> running the half marathon PR in a marathon. Um I can see how that wouldn't end up working out to your favor. Actually, I can't lie. I am friends with your coach, and I will have to say that I did solicit him for any questions or topics, and and we were going back and forth a little bit, and he made a great point. He says, make sure to ask him about not following his coach's plan on his previous marathon and running a PR through the half marathon and then eating a huge slice of humble pie the rest of the way. So Coach Cutter did want me to ask you about that. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Coach Cutter knows me best. And um, actually, his words, (laughs) my past two marathons specifically, um, his exact words were, if you start ripping off any sub six miles in the first half of your race, I'm going to drive to that race course and kick your you know what. (laughs) One thing that really stuck with me in this last marathon, I had Coach Cutter in my head, you know, the first half of the race, I had that, that image and that words from him really stuck with me and you know and i honestly i firmly believe why i had a better experience this time you know and i didn't do those things i didn't run a half marathon pr the first half of this marathon and uh most definitely you know that that'll forever stay in my head and based on my second marathon from that at that uh last chance to bq course i uh i won't make that mistake again Obviously, the threat of violence by a man as as strong as Patrick Cutter is 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 one kind of motivation. The other kind, though, is learning from experience, right? I mean, does when you think back to that experience, where obviously you were super fit to to run a half marathon PR, and then still, even when you were crashing, to still run a three hundred three is, for all intents and purposes, a fantastic marathon time. You know, obviously no, it obviously wasn't quite what you were hoping for, but and we'll talk about your fitness past. Like, to say, that, like, hey, wow, I really, you know, crashed on this marathon and still almost broke three hours. Like, that, that really is saying something about your fitness level. But do you think you would have been able to go out in this past race where all of a sudden, we'll, and we'll go through how this race turned out for you, but you've ended up finishing extremely strong, this one, 
And do you think that came about in part because of the learning experience you had in the previous race? Oh, most definitely. There's not a doubt in my mind about that. And, you know, Patrick Cutter can testify for that, too. You know, him in the back of my head telling me these things. And something that really stuck with me on this past marathon was I played a pretty conservative approach for my first six miles. Um, you can definitely tell, you know, based on my splits of that rate this past marathon that I, I eased my way into it. This is the first marathon that I've ever negative split. And Patrick will be very proud to hear that. Not, she knows this now, but he's very proud of that for that matter. And, oh, it definitely contributed to being able to not only finish with my best time ever, but finish strong, you know. And even at my last, I believe my strongest miles were miles 22 to 24. And to be able to do that and, you know, that late in the in a marathon when things are really starting to hurt and still be able to dig deep and power through is definitely a contribution of starting off, you know, definitely more conservative, easing my way into the marathon. And ultimately, it led to not blowing up and resulting in a personal best and my best marathon. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. So take me back, John. Um, you know, you you have said before, that, you know, you've kind of described a little bit how you lost 100 pounds, uh, the beginning of your fitness journey. When you were at that weight, what what led to that? Like what what led to um the circumstances or what were the circumstances um in your life that that allowed you to get to that point um from a fitness and weight perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So back then it, it was my senior year of high school where I was at my heaviest. I weighed 304 pounds, but at that time I was a a football on the football team. I was an offensive lineman, you know, and obviously, you know, offensive linemen in general are, you know, the bigger guys on the team. So really, I mean, football was a big contribution to that. My eating habits specifically. Um, I was a really big pop drinker back then and not, I've eliminated pop out of my diet then. That's a huge contribution to my weight loss. But, uh, to be honest, I was drinking almost a two liter of pop a day and, you know, that and a mixture of not eating the greatest and, Filling my body with stuff that I shouldn't have been filling my body with was a huge contribution to that. Um, you know, I was active in, in school and everything. And, you know, I played football. I played basketball, baseball. I was a three-sport athlete throughout, you know, the winter, summer, and spring seasons when it came to, uh, you know, high school sports and everything. So it's not like I wasn't active by no means, but it was definitely, you know, my diet. I didn't really pay attention to that. There was no... There was no uh, barrier there or anything to stop me from doing those things. And then it really wasn't until I finished football when I really started to say, hey, you know, I need to make a life change here. Like something's got to give. I mean, I had a hard conversation with my doctor at the age of 17. My primary care, you know, told me I was on the verge of having, you know, type 1 or type, I can't remember at the time, it was type 1 or type 2 diabetes. And that really stuck with me, you know, when you're 17 years old and you, you don't really know how to take that all in for that matter. So it definitely, definitely shook me for a little bit. And, you know, I knew I had to do something at that point. I had offers to play, you know, college football, but, you know, I, at that lifestyle, I didn't want that. I really found, you know, my niche in running. And even then, back then, you know, I tried running and, you know, obviously got a lot better sense, but really bridged that gap into starting that and starting the weight loss in general. So what were some of the football schools you were considering before you decided to go in a different direction? So I had over Wayne State University here in Michigan, a couple other real small schools over here. Not nothing major by no means, but small Division three football schools here in the state of Michigan. Hey, I'm a Division three basketball player, man. I can get down with some D3 athletics. Absolutely, you know. Oh, that's interesting. So when you made the choice to move away from football, even though you had opportunities to play in college, which is um, something that you know most high school athletes are looking to do, was there any kind of grieving period after that? Because it sounded like your decision wasn't necessarily football-based. It was more these these health factors and not health factors like, oh, man, like I, I tore every ligament in my knee. Now I can't play. It was like these health factors that were made because of choices in your life. So what was that decision process like for you deciding not to go to football um, instead, instead just to, to, to go the other way? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I would say a huge contribution to that is slightly my upbringing, but my family too, you know, generally speaking, 
My family is on the heavier set, not the healthiest by no means. So that, you know, that really stuck with me. I didn't want to repeat history there. You know, I'd see some of the health issues some of my family members have. And to be to be honest, it, it, it scared me a little bit. And I wanted to be a positive change for myself. But I also think generally speaking, you know, when when you feel fit and when you're doing when you're working out in general, you feel better about yourself. Self-consciously, you feel a lot better. And I think a lot of those are a huge contribution overall to just not only, you know, your health in general, but your overall happiness too. You know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So when you made the decision not to play football and you're, you know, thinking about, okay, I need to get healthier. Obviously, deciding not to play is, you know, potentially a step in the right direction, but that's not going to solve the problem, right? That's the problem seems to be more on the diet end because of, I mean, you were certainly a active person, right? You're a three-sport athlete. You're in high school at the time. Like, that's kind of the definition of an athletic teenager. So beyond just, you know, not playing football because in order to play, you'd have to play at a certain weight, what were the other steps that you that you took to become more healthy as opposed to just removing things uh, from your plate? Yeah, I really think a, the big answer to that is uh, diet change. You know, I think that was the hugest contribution. I, like I said, I don't know if I mentioned this a little prior in the podcast, but uh, I was drinking a two-liter two pop a day. And, you know, I, mean, I can only imagine what that does to the body in general. Um, cut out pop cut out sweets for a while. I, I've reverted back since to, you know, eating, eating and splurging a little more and, you know, enjoying the the good stuff, but in moderation, of course, you know, it's nothing like it used to be back then. I didn't have any, any thoughts about what was going into my body back then. It was just like, okay, you know, I picked this up and I, I ate it, you know, I didn't think about it. I didn't read anything about it. I didn't know what was going into my body. I just know I liked it. So I did it. So now I'm a lot more conscious of, you know, what's fueling my body. It's no longer, I guess, eating for feelings and it's eating for fuel now. And I, I can feel that, you know, my body can feel that. My body's thanking me ultimately from it, too. Oh, I can imagine. And doing it at that at that time of your life, right? You're a teenager and you're at a time where even if you, you know, were diehard about like, okay, these are the steps I want to take from a diet and nutrition perspective. I got to believe that most of the people around you aren't thinking in those terms, right? So what's it like trying to become more healthy from a nutrition perspective when maybe the folks around you aren't really walking the same path? Yeah, it's definitely difficult, you know, and I'm a firm believer of, you know, you become the people you surround yourself with, you know, they definitely rub off on you. So it's, it's hard to take a, you know, a step in a direction where it's not not very known of what you're doing or, you know, you don't really think you may have the support there. So you definitely walk a line not traveled very often there. So you definitely uh, have to really think about your own well-being, you know, and it comes down to what you really want. And I'm a really goal-oriented person, so I like to set goals. And that really helps me not only stay accountable, but it gives me something to strive for. So I think that really helped myself, you know, started off as I wanted to lose 10 pounds. I wanted to lose 20 pounds. Then it became greater than that, you know, and then it really started to flow. I really started to connect. I set bigger goals. And that's one thing I really like to pride myself on a little bit is once I accomplish a goal, it's like, okay, what's the next goal? You know, you have to raise the standard. And I uh, follow David Goggins a little bit. And something that he said that really stuck with me is, you know, once you get to the top of the mountain, you can't be okay. You you got to start to build another mountain. I, that really stuck with me. And like I said, it really goes back to being a goal-oriented person and just never being comfortable, always striving for what's next and always setting bigger goals once you hit the goals you do hit, reevaluating those and going for them again. Hey, everybody, do you want to save money on your grocery bill? Well, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. Try America's Best Value Meal Kit for planning dinners today. I love every plate for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I just love having things in my kitchen, especially in my refrigerator, that 
isn't the same old thing that I do every single week. Also, getting things that aren't too adventurous that my kids are definitely going to eat. Obviously, you're never going to beat that a thousand with that. But with every plate, my kids have really enjoyed it. And I like the food as well. And it's just not the same stuff every single week, which can get tiring. So you can choose between 17 recipes that change each week, swap proteins and sides for things that you like, so you can switch up your dinner routine however you want. And that's the key thing. It's however you want. There's so many options, and it's all great stuff, which is also huge. For me, the difference between this and some of the other uh, services in this genre are, first of all, the price. It's absolutely fantastic. We'll get to it in a second. The kinds of meals that are provided, that they're really good, but not too adventurous, have also been a huge thing for me. And now I've been using these more often now that groceries have kind of gone up and the price for every plate has pretty much stayed the same. So try every plate today. It's $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179. That stands for $1.79 per meal. So get started with every plate, like I said, for $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179 today. That's up to $104 value. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I heard other podcasters who were really into performance and athletics, people like Rich Roll and Tim Ferriss, who used it all the time. And I thought, hey, man, if they're going to use it, then I should too. And I'm so glad that I did. So what's in this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, all to help you start your day the right way. The special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery, literally all the things. I mean, there's too many things for me to list. I actually have to like take a pause during the sentence, uh, but it's, it's legit and I'm so glad that I use it. I use it basically because I know that Getting my vitamins and minerals from from foods is probably the best way to do it. But I usually just don't have the kind of diet and make the kind of food choices that's going to put myself in the optimum position. And that's why I take Athletic Greens to make sure that I have everything I need because I know I'm probably not getting it from foods because I just don't quite have the, the discipline or the food choices that I need. And Athletic Greens is there to help me out. And I'm so glad that they are. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. So once you changed your diet and you made the decision not to play football, what were some of the activities you were pursuing at that time to help facilitate some of that weight loss? So running was definitely a big one. Um, then at that day, I think back then when I was still on my heavier days, I ran my first 5K. And I think it wasn't actually a 5K. It was a three-mile three mile race at a local park uh, here in Michigan. It's a Dodge Park, if anyone's familiar with it. But I remember having the most awful time of my life with that race. <laughs> now at the time, heaviest as I ever been. It was a hot summer day. It's in the, you know, the month of June and the month of June here in Michigan can have some pretty, uh, pretty hot and humid days. So I remember it was a midday race too, about 4 p.m. start time. The sun's blaring and, you know, that, uh, that really stuck with me. And at that point, that really, I don't know. I, I really love that. I found my love for the running community there. You know, I really saw everybody. I love what everyone was doing at that time. I was a pretty competitive race too, for that matter. So I think I really dove into the running community there, got my uh, feet wet, as you could say. And from there, I really set a goal of doing a marathon. And that from there kept me accountable and back to the goal oriented stuff that definitely uh, spiked my interest. So my first marathon was definitely a goal there. And I did some cross training in between. I don't know if you're familiar with um, P90X or anything, but I was doing some cross yeah, yeah. training and that really helped too. That helped uh, with some of the muscle, like building the muscle definition that I wanted. So that was a nice bridge and gap between not only doing that, but ultimately training for my first marathon. And did you have anybody either in person or 
or uh, in any other form or fashion that you followed um, from a running perspective in order to kind of help you with training or just something that you could learn from from afar? Like, was there any kind of like in-person or virtual unknowing mentors that kind of helped you along that path? I would say my brother did. My brother ran in high school. He was a cross country and track. Specifically, he was a fairly competitive inside the cross country field. He made states his senior year of high school and he uh he ran with his now wife at the time girlfriend, but in high school ran with his uh you know, now to be wife and you know, I I would see them running all the time still, you know, even to this date a little bit. And they really got me introduced to the sport of running. And my uh, sister-in-law actually ran a marathon. My brother didn't, but my sister-in-law did run a marathon. And my uh, little brother did too shortly after that. And that really spiked my interest in it. And I, I like to think I'm a competitive person too. So I wanted to be, you know, not only did I want to run a marathon, but I wanted to run a marathon faster than some like everyone in my family, you know. So that kind of uh, spiked my interest inside there, and I would say my brother definitely brought me into the sport and showed me showed me the ropes a little bit there. So you've mentioned uh, several times how competitive you are, and as a competitive person, I can certainly relate to that feeling. Um, so what's it been like for you to make sure that your competitiveness, or I shouldn't say it like that, like, have you been able to make sure that your competitiveness is pushing you in the proper direction? Or are there times where maybe it's pushed you like in more of a negative path? Like, oh, how come I'm not beating this person? How come I'm not getting to this time threshold fast enough? Like, what's, what's that been like for you managing and making sure that your competitiveness is going in the direction that ultimately is the most beneficial for you? Yeah, I've definitely had very good experience with it, but in the same breath, you know, it's definitely bit me a couple times. I like to uh, take you back to the second time I ran the last chance to BQ Marathon in Grand Rapids, Um, and that wasn't even necessarily competition with anyone else but myself. You know, I had goals in my head of what I wanted to run that day, and, you know, it definitely, definitely a pride thing there, too. I would like to think, you know, I wanted a certain time goal, and... I uh I put all my eggs in that basket of running that time goal and you know maybe I wasn't as fit as I needed to be or maybe I just needed more time to get to that goal and you know that definitely bit me once or twice in the uh in the past there and specifically that race you know I didn't have the greatest experience and I think that got in my way a little bit for that race. So talk to me about your first marathon. You mentioned this was a goal that kind of started very early on. Uh, what was that first marathon experience like? Oh, man, my first one was uh, something else. So my first marathon, finish time of 5.58. It was the Detroit Marathon, Detroit International Marathon. And uh, that that race, I walked the entire second half, and that was due to uh, – a little bit of an ankle issue I had, and that uh, that race will forever stick with me. You know, I I had a brutal experience out there in Detroit that day, and uh, overall it resulted in a very bad second half. You know, mentally, overall, and physically, that that race was a real test to me. But it really showed me that what it means to to finish a marathon, and that the marathon owes nobody anything and it testifies how hard they really are and I experienced that that day you know I didn't train as properly as I should have for my first marathon I underestimated it I thought I could go out and just do it and that's not the case with a marathon you can't just go out and do it and 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 if you can you you're not going to do it at the level that I that you think you probably can and that definitely uh it's a humble feeling you know especially with with going through that. And like I said, I really like to think finishing that marathon was such an accomplishment, even though it wasn't anywhere near the time I won. I don't necessarily like to count it because, you know, I, I walked the whole second half of that race, but it counts, baby. It, counts, it definitely counts. counts. <laughs> it definitely counts. And it, it showed me the love for the sport too. You know, that gave me that humble feeling and it, it gave me the, uh, the itch to come back to that distance. And I know that sounds crazy after having such a bad experience, but it made me want to come back and come back stronger than I did that race. That's for sure. 
Did that feeling of wanting to come back, did that happen immediately? Or was there a little bit of time where you had to kind of lick your wounds a little bit after that, after such a, a tough and long day? There was a, definitely a healing process there. It, uh, when I finished that race, you could ask me that question. I told you I was never going to do another marathon again. So I can relate to that, John. I've had that experience. Yeah, so I definitely, uh, it took some time, you know, but I did some self-reflecting on that and Shortly after that, I know it's going to sound crazy after the experience I had, but then I set the the goal of qualifying for Boston. You know, after my first marathon going as bad as it did, I, you know, being the goal-oriented person I, I am, I, I set a pretty lofty goal of one day qualifying for Boston after that race. And I would say that happened then a month after we were running that race. So when was that race? That race was 20, October 2017. Okay, so that was three and a half years ago? Yep. Yeah, three and a half years ago. Okay, so go from 5.58 to BQ. So basically, chop your marathon time in half, right? So run, or another way way of putting it, run twice as fast as you ran during the first one. Um, That is an audacious goal. And that is something that, I mean, kudos to you for you know, really picking something that was, you know, an incredibly high bar to clear. Is that a goal that you verbalized to anybody at that time? It did. And it's funny you said that. I actually, uh, I put it out to the Instagram world too. And I mean, in general, my family all knew about it. My close friends knew about it. I And I actually, I, I tried to do what I call speaking it into existence. You know, I told my family I was going to qualify for Boston. It was never, you know, Will I qualify? It was I'm going to qualify. I don't know what did they that... did they know what that meant and what kind of improvement that you would need to do to get that goal? They knew what it was, but no, deep down, I don't think they really comprehended what what that really looks like. And I think a lot of people underestimate what that really looks like. There's, you know, that that's not an easy goal for anyone by no means. So. They knew what it was. They knew about Boston. They knew it was competitive and hard to get into. But the overall of what it actually takes to get into Boston and what it takes to run up time in the training and time in general it takes to do that. It, it took me, I believe, five, five and a half years from to actually do that from when I started running. So, you know, I like to think I started running at least back in, you know, when I was 17 on the verge of all that. So, they uh they knew what it was, but they definitely didn't know the the work and how much time it would actually take putting into qualifying for it. Looking back now, did you have a sense of what it what it required when you set that goal? Honestly, no, I, I didn't think it was going to be as hard and as challenging as it was. Um, it, it was a five year experience for me too, and you know I learned through trial and error. I learned through running my first marathon, running my second marathon. I still didn't qualify. I shaved time my second marathon, but still didn't run the time I needed. And then my second marathon was 3.45, I believe. Holy cow. You cut, that's, that's really good. You cut a lot of time. Yeah, you know, and you know, I definitely cut a lot of time there. But, you know, at that point, there, there's still, still a lot of time to go. You know, I still needed to cut the 45 minutes in order to get my Boston qualifying time. So definitely, definitely improvement for my first one. Very proud of that between my first and my second. But I still know there was a lot of work ahead in order to get to that 45 minute barrier to break three hours of what my current Boston qualifying time is. And definitely, uh, Definitely a lot more challenging, you know, as you get lower in the marathon times, it seconds and minutes start to become more precious, I like to think, you know. So once you start to get down into those times, it becomes a lot harder to make drastic improvements. Like nowadays, you're never going to see me cut 45 minutes between my next marathon. Like, so it's, I think it was easier to do it back then. But now, once you get to these lower times and whatnot, it seconds and minutes definitely become a lot more precious. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. So what have you done in the last, you know, two and a half to three years? And obviously you ran, you just said a huge PR, but, you know, prior to that in your previous marathons, you were still around that, right around that three-hour barrier. So you were at a point where you'd already qualified for Boston once, and even after that you ran a 303 in a marathon that you didn't even execute the way you wanted to. So you were obviously super fit at that time. So 
from, say, the 345, 347 until you get to approaching the three hour mark, what were some of the changes that you made, um, not just from a running perspective, but holistically uh, as well to get you to the point where you were on the cusp of, of achieving this goal that was at first, like, like I mentioned before, an audacious goal to set? I like to think there's two big things there. Um, number one I'm going to lead with is consistency, you know, Consistency is everything, you know, building your aerobic engine and putting in the miles and specifically putting in the slower pace miles, you know, the sometimes referred to as junk miles that really aren't junk miles at all. It's what's building your overall fitness and the consistency that goes into that. And I'd say the second answer to that is uh, joining McCurdy and, you know, having Patrick Cutter as my coach. Um that that really is the two things that I believe separated and got me to start running my faster times and ultimately getting to the time I am today. And what have you done in training over those times? Like, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I did snoop a little bit with some of your running friends and they, they I know that you had a, a th- you just had a 300 mile month. Right. In in March and, and you're 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 pushing it really, really hard. So what has training evolved into in terms of where you were a couple of years ago to what you do now uh, from, say, like a weekly mileage standpoint and how you and Patrick are setting up your your workout schedule? Absolutely. And I think a big thing of that is uh, definitely mileage. You know, I would say first marathon I ran probably 15 to 20 miles a week. Um, in my later, you know, in my past marathon, I was training upwards to 65 to 72 miles a week. I think I peaked right around 70, 71 miles in that training block in a weekly period. Um, I did hit a monthly personal best of 300 miles in the month of March of this year. I think that definitely set me up for huge success. And I think that comes down to a consistency thing too, like I mentioned earlier is, putting in those miles, running those easy pace miles, hitting your workouts and your quality sessions and executing, you know, not only your own goals, but, you know, your your coaching plan and really executing on those. All right. So 300 miles in a month is an average of 10 miles a day. I'm you know, I'm not the best at math. You work in a math, math-based field, so maybe you can check me on that. But I'm pretty sure it's close to 10 miles a day. So... With that being the case, what does a week of training look like if you're averaging that amount per day, which I would assume that most people would just be gobsmacked if you asked them to do that? <laughs> it's funny. The first thing I'm going to tell you is it, it's it's a lot of sleep, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of sleep there. But uh, no, what it looks like on a uh, weekly basis, you know, when I was hitting my peak weeks inside my this training block, it was um, two quality sessions a, a week. Uh, one being a long run, you know, a long run workout. So not only are you um, running a long distance on your long run days, but you're doing workouts there, you know, sometimes even, you know, five to 12 miles at marathon pace work, you know, you're really getting used to what it's like to run on tired legs there. And not only are you running on tired legs, but you're running, you know, your goal pace on those tired legs. Um, During the week, I would say I do one quality session and that is, um, you know, either interval training or something a little faster than marathon pace. So whether that's, you know, 400 meter repeats, 800 meter repeats um, at a slightly faster than marathon pace, maybe it's threshold pace, getting down to even 5 to 10K pace. Um, I think that's really big for making your marathon or even your half marathon pace seem a little easier. It's hitting those paces that are faster that build your anaerobic engine up and can allow making your marathon or half marathon pace seem a little easier, more manageable, and it slowly builds out your threshold where you're clearing that lactic acid faster. And and then really aside from that, a couple doubles too. You know, when, when you start talking 65, 70 miles a week, you're throwing in, I was throwing in about one to two doubles a week in, inside there too. So when, um, just from a weekly construction, when do you put the doubles in? Um, so just tell me, like, just go like day by day. So like, so the doubles come in like before the the workout, after the workout. Like, how how would it look um, when you're throwing the doubles in? Yeah, so my doubles would usually be thrown in on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, specifically, always Thursday was my uh, a double, and it's funny because my double would come 
after my workout on Wednesday and you know that's uh you're running on tire legs there. And I know that may not make the most sense, but it uh really helps with getting used to running on tired legs and I really think that's what sets you up for a good marathon and so my doubles would be the day after my normal workouts I would run generally speaking eight miles in the morning four in the afternoon and occasionally I would throw a double in on Tuesday same concept you know four four miles in the afternoon or eight nine in the morning and usually I would rest on Mondays as well. So as you've built up your mileage, has that been the result of Patrick pushing you to go to go farther because he knew you're capable of it? Or what, did it come from your end as someone who just kind of wanted to keep pushing the envelope farther and farther? Yeah, definitely a combination of the two. Um, obviously, you know, Patrick believed in me and what my what times and goals I wanted. And that's, you know, that's partially set by me, too. You know, I've been very transparent with him on what my goals are, and he helps set my training plans up accordingly to make sure I do obtain those goals. But again, I'm always setting the bar higher. Once I hit a goal, I'm setting something, something a little deeper and giving myself something to strive for. So it's definitely a combination of the two, but Patrick's definitely great at uh, giving me what I ask for. And, you know, I always do want a little more out of myself. I want to challenge myself a little harder and I'm a firm believer in in order to get something that you never had, you have to do stuff you never done. Well said. And you've certainly done that over and over again. Coming into this race, as you mentioned, your marathon PB was 257. When you ran a 303, it's probably safe to assume that you were in better shape than 257 shape since you were able to you know, basically still run 303 even after uh, hitting the wall the way you did. So coming into this race, what was the game plan and what time did you and Patrick think was um, something that you were potentially going to hit? So this marathon specifically, I was chasing that 250 barrier. A uh, couple big reasons for it. One, I, I think I was capable of hitting 250. And another was I wanted uh, I wanted at least a 10-minute cushion for Boston qualifying this year. Yeah, that's the time that everyone keeps talking about, right? The 10 to 12 minute. Obviously, it's um when you're talking about getting 10 to 12 minutes under three hours, that is that's like <laughs> time is precious, as you put it earlier. And that is a big barrier to hit. So good for you for to you know identifying again another huge goal and going after it. So what was it like getting to the later stages of the marathon? Miles 21, 22, where for so many of us, and even in your past, those can be some really brutal miles. What was it like for you to have the kind of that opposite feeling? Really, I think that stemmed from setting myself up for a successful marathon in the first early 10 miles. You know, it's not pushing the envelope early in that race. It's, you know... I'm a firm believer you can't bank away time in a marathon, and I know a lot of people have opinion on that, but I firmly believe and through experience myself on, you know, how my uh, marathon, my 303 marathon win is I don't think you can bank as much time as you think you can. So consistent splits and ultimately I, I negative split a marathon. That was my first time ever doing so, and I really think that was a huge contribution on how I was able to pushed through in the later stage of the race. I had an excellent support system there. Um, Coach uh, Heather Knight from Knight Training was there, you know, to really support, put on an excellent marathon there. Her support there alone, you know, there was a loop course. every So it was a three-mile loop course, and every time I would come by, I had proper proper hydration there. I would get a water bottle, you know, hand-tossed to me right there. I actually, uh, funny story, is on my last lap of that marathon, so just as I passed mile 23, I was wearing gloves. It was a 40-degree, you know, day over there, pretty cold in the morning from the start, so I had gloves on, and I I dropped my water bottle, and Coach uh, Heather actually had a volunteer on a bike uh, ride up to me, catch me, and hand-deliver that bottle to me, so uh, very very awesome experience there, but uh, really proper hydration and proper fueling. I, I had a lot of time to really test and trial and error and figure out what works for my body through the past few marathons I've ran. So really setting myself up hydration and nutrition wise was a huge factor and part of the success of being able to, you know, have a good experience in the later half of the race and specifically the last 10K. 
All right. One thing that you haven't mentioned, John, is something that I know you kept a little hush-hush, which was a torn abdominal muscle that you had coming into this race. So I'd love to hear more about that, not only how it happened, but how it affected you on race day. Yeah, it's funny. I I have kept this pretty hush-hush. And to tell you the truth, I don't even know if I broke that news to Coach Patrick yet. (laughs) So this is the first time he's hearing about it. I want to say sorry, Coach. Um, I feel great, though. Um, How it happened, though, I would say is it happened on a training run. I was on one of my long runs, and I uh, it was a workout that required some marathon pace miles. It was a pretty brutal day out wind-wise and everything, and I got about to mile 10 of that of that training run and something just did not feel right. I felt like I got an immense crap like cramp in my uh right side of my abdominal area and I had uh, it lingered for about 2 weeks before I even got it checked out and I had a uh, quite an awful experience getting it checked out and I'll run through you guys on how that works. So I started by going to urgent care about 2 weeks after it happened. They uh they just, you know, felt the area, looked for any signs of hernias or anything, like maybe potential organ damage. Urgent care actually ruled it as my gallbladder first and told me to go get a um to go get an ultrasound at the ER. So, you know, I took their advice. I think the next day I tried to go to the ER. Um I waited nine hours in the ER lobby room and got so frustrated I actually left. Nine hours later I actually left the ER room and didn't get it checked out. Thankfully, I was able to get into my primary care doctor who was able to uh, get me in, check me out, ruled out that it wasn't any organ damage, it was muscular, and she wanted me to see uh, a general surgeon that actually specialized in specifically abdominal area, and that's when he was able to do the ultrasound on me and told me, uh, you know, I had a slight tear in my abdominal wall. Holy cow. All right. So what does that mean in terms of... Uh, prognosis slash advice for someone who's about to run a marathon. You know, it's funny, you know, the generally speaking, uh, the his personal recommendation was four to six weeks rest, you know, in order to totally heal it. Thankfully, the tear isn't and wasn't bad enough to the point where he deemed it needed surgery. He said time could heal it. He did tell me specifically that uh, no healing would take place until after the marathon, you know, and after training occurred and specifically giving myself four to six weeks of rest. Um, but, uh, you know, definitely uh, makes it challenging to run on, that's for sure, to say the least. Yeah, in like true runner form, you took a four to six week rest diagnosis and turned it into, I'll give it a little test run tomorrow. You know, and that's uh, that's exactly what I did, you know. I, <laughs> I know it's uh, not not the smartest thing to do, but... You know, us runners are pretty prideful. You know, I was coming off of, uh, I actually tore it in the month of March. So to to really finish the month of March with not only 300 miles, but 300 miles was my personal best monthly wise of mileage ran in one single month. So it's definitely a pride thing there. Um, in the first week of April, I ran a uh, half marathon time trial, a pretty, you know, respectable time for what I was shooting for. I ended up running 121 something i can't remember the exact seconds there but you know running all that on a torn abdominal and then having the marathon that i did is uh quite a prideful thing that i take there and you know really proud of it i know it's not the smartest thing by no means but uh you know definitely going to give myself the time and rest i need now to fully recover come back stronger next time now that i hit you know one of my personal goals i want to set another goal for myself and but I want to make sure I definitely heal up first, take care of my body and myself. Yeah, please do, John. We want to see what you got next, but you obviously have to make sure you take care of yourself. So please do heal up. Before we get going, I have to ask, because your journey here, you know, you're very humble about it, as it's like, oh, yeah, there was this, and then I was this, and then I was this. And it, it almost comes across, or it's easy to lose track of, how remarkable it is. You went from a 300-pound teenager to a marathon winner. And that is remarkable by any standard of measure. So what are your thoughts and feelings on just personal limitations and or what people are capable of doing? Because what you have done is just, it's remarkable. I don't don't know. I can't think of another word for it. (laughs) I really appreciate that. And really what I 
my answer to that is it's just to stay consistent, set goals, give yourself something to work towards, you know, something to keep you motivated, to keep the drive alive. And then it's it's just not getting not getting comfortable once you hit those goals. You know, it's always wanting more for not only, you know, your running journey or it's just what you want in life and wanting more for yourself, staying consistent on those. And then once you do hit those goals, you know, reevaluating and it, and I'm a firm believer taking the time to, you know, really celebrate your wins and celebrate the goals you do hit. But afterwards, I think, uh, reevaluating and setting bigger goals and keeping yourself motivated, keeping the drive alive and just, uh, overall never stopping, you know, and I know that's not always a, a good thing. And I know it's, you know, obviously like now is a great time to reflect back on that after I ran my marathon. I want to take, you know, time not only to heal, you know, my abdominal situation, but, you know, I think you need to take time to rest and that's how you come back stronger. Well said. John, thank you so much for coming on the show and good luck with all of your future goals. Hey, it was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me and I uh, hope you have a great evening. John, thank you so much for coming on this show. Also, big shout out to Inside Tracker and McCurdy Train for supporting the show. Appreciate those guys so very much. Also, head over to Road to the Trials if you haven't done so already. We put out two episodes last week. We had one with Frank Lara. We had another one with Tyler Day. This week, we're going to catch up with Frank Lara and Abe Alvarado after their fantastic weekend over at the Drake Relays. Those aren't available yet, but we are going to record those episodes this week. And like with Road of the Trials, we always put out each episode as soon as we can. So over here on the Rambling Runner, we come out Mondays and Fridays. You always have that consistency. Road of the Trials is a little bit more varied because, hey, you never know when you can get um, you know these high-level athletes on the phone and also making sure that we want to keep it as relevant as possible. So I'm not going to hold the episode back, right? If I can get them on the phone, then that baby's coming out within 24 to 36 hours every single time. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest of states these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.